0: I'm Diana Rodriguez Wallach, and my book is Hatchet Girls, and it is inspired by the true story of Lizzie Borden, and I call it a mashup of Lizzie Borden meets Supernatural, only with Puerto Rican characters. The idea was imagining what would happen in Fall River, Massachusetts, the actual hometown of Lizzie Borden, today if another mother and father were murdered by axe, and it just so happens that Fall River and specifically the neighboring Freetown Fall River State Forest are located within the Bridgewater Triangle, which is a supernatural Bermuda Triangle of New England that has an unusually high amount of documented supernatural activity. And it asks whether all of this dark lore that has happened in this area is because the land is cursed or is the land cursed because of all of these dark acts like lizzie borden
1: um and i'm going to start out the conversation by not necessarily jumping right into the story but um there's a couple of Mm -hmm. things that um i thought were going to be interesting to talk about and um one of them is the location so uh before i dive into the question Hatchet Girls is uh, a book that includes the the kind of lore and history of of Lizzie Borden, the murders that happened a long time ago, and that's that's what hooked me in. And I was really excited when I read, you know, what this story was going to be, um, like similar murders taking place in the present day that kind of you know um, harken back to that time. And I was like, that's really great. And then um, having finished reading the book, though. One thing that I wasn't expecting that I think was really cool was how much other um, cool, weird, spooky stuff is going on in the area that this story takes place. So I think that had we just had the Lizzie Borden kind of backdrop, that would have been sufficient. But what you did was you took a lot of the history and the, the strange goings on of the area and really built out a lot more than I expected. So um, that is just, I don't even know if there's a question there, but it's really cool to get all of that kind of unexpected other stuff too.
0: So that came second to me when I I didn't know about it when I came up with the idea. So when I came up with the, the idea for the book, I was watching the most recent movie adaptation about Lizzie Borden. I think it features Kristen Stewart and chloe sevigny i believe that's how her name is pronounced and it imagines that lizzie had an affair with her maid bridget sullivan and so i'm watching that and i just had this thought of like what uh would it? What would happen? Has there been another axe murder in Fall River, Massachusetts, since that happened? So I did my research and I'm sure if someone out there can correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't find another one. And I thought, what a sensational story that would be if there was another mother and father who were killed by axe in Fall River today. That was the germ of the idea. And yeah. then I started doing the research, and that's when I found out about the Bridgewater Triangle, which is this designated area in New England that was, I think the term was coined by some cryptozoologist in a book, that it just had an unusual amount of documented cases of supernatural activity, including one of the first UFO sightings in the world was documented (laughs) by the colonists in this Bridgewater Triangle. And I thought, wow, that's like so perfect because my last book, Small Town Monsters, had elements of the supernatural. So I kind of write supernatural horror and I love to pull from history. All of my books have a chapter at the end called The Truth, where I talk about the real history that I use in my books. So that fit in so perfectly. And then I kept going. And I learned of the satanic panic Murders in the 1980s that were blamed on a satanic cult in the Freetown fall river state forest. And then I learned that Condé Nast, like named that forest, one of the most haunted forests in the world, like right underneath that Japanese forest where people tend to commit oh. suicide. And so yeah. all of these things just sort of fit together in a perfect setting for a horror novel that I couldn't believe it hadn't been written before.
1: Yeah, that's um. And that's interesting because the impression I got being totally naive. I live in the Midwest and I've all, except for a couple of years in Vermont, I've always lived in the Midwest. So um not super familiar with the East coast. Um, it seems like maybe either I'm naive because I don't live in that area or that area is overshadowed by the lore of the Lizzie Borden stuff that we, you know, like mm-hmm. nationally don't hear about the other stuff as much. Maybe.
0: It's interesting. That could be part of it, though, even with the, the Borden family themselves, there's more to the story than just Lizzie. Like her aunt lived in a house right next door and she killed her two children in the basement and then Killed herself right next door to the Borden house, and that the the aunt's house is no longer standing. But the room that I slept in when I went to the Lizzie Borden house, the maid's room, has toys set up because they believe the ghost children would still come here and play. You know, this is where they played when they were little, and to find that out, to find out that the bloodiest war per capita in American history, even worse than the Civil War, happened in the Bridgewater Triangle between the colonists and the Native Americans there. And I had never even heard of these battles. And it led to a thought that I even add into the book in dialogue, which do all of these dark things happened because the land is cursed, because of the Bridgewater Triangle, or is the land cursed? because all these dark things happens there. And I yeah. think it's an interesting paradox as to which way you see it.
1: Yeah. Cause it could easily be explained either way. and makes sense. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 That, that part with the, the bloodiest war part when, when that came up in your book was yeah, especially fascinating to me, but, and I think it ties into, we haven't talked about the plot or anything yet, but I think that ties into a lot of like, overall themes that i was pulling out of it as a reader which was like um like first of all there's there's trauma but there's like um people doing bad things and there's like how we deal with the the horrible things in our lives and stuff and then but this is kind of just zoomed out and generally generationally almost like um there's Mm -hmm. a real bloody history um to that area and is there like a lasting impact from that it's pretty cool
0: um, yes. Yes. And, I mean, and you could see it, especially in the forest. Um, the The Huckamuck Swamp is the Huckamuck word in, in the Wampanoag tribe. And I probably pronounced that incorrectly. Named it the Huckamuck Swamp because the word means where spirits dwell. And that was actually the original title of the book when I wrote it. And even the colonists back in the 1600s called it Devil's Swamp. So even back then, they thought there was something wrong with this land. They thought it was cursed. Even the Native Americans who lived there thought it was cursed. And they do believe there are tons of bodies, you know what I mean, in that area, unmarked in that area. And when I went to the forest, when I was doing my book research, because I'm a you know, journalist by nature, I went to journalism school at Boston University. So any setting that I put in my books, I have physically been there, even if it's just a coffee shop. So when we went to the forest, the craziest thing about it was that there were, was no wildlife at all in thousands of acres of forest. So I typically, when I'm writing, I write the book beforehand and then I go visit the location so I know exactly what I'm looking for when I go there. And I know like, they need to get from this cliff to that location and I walk the path. Well, I had written all of these horror-related jump scenes, you know, jump scares into the book (laughs) where birds would fly out or a squirrel would run across or a rabbit or a snake or something. And then I get to the forest and there was nothing. We hiked for five hours, and it was complete silence the entire time. And this went from evening to night. We, park, we, we hiked in the pitch black at one point to leave, and you didn't hear crickets. You didn't hear birds chirp. There was not one squirrel, anything. So just looking in my, like, city backyards, I saw more wildlife than in these thousands of acres of woods. And it sort of struck me to rewrite all of those scenes. And I watched some more documentaries about Fall River and there are police officers talking about the woods because there have been a lot of murders there historically over the years. And they have made that comment. They're like, listen to this. There aren't any deer here. There aren't any birds. Something is wrong. And it definitely gives you, that was creepier than staying in the Lizzie Borden house
1: yeah and um, what a gift to your story like especially since you you like to you know stay so truthful to like what's you know to reality that um -hmm. it was like that was like just handed to you this like there's something wrong thing that's like literally happening in the place that you're setting this um and that was very effective because like um i like the idea of an absence of thing something being scarier than if that thing was there like something really bad has to be going on for like no animals to want to have something to do with it. That's pretty wild. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, that was the feeling that we had when we were walking through there, that that was scarier than anything else. And any idea of a ghost that the animals knew something that we didn't.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really good. Um, So supernatural stuff came up. And one of my questions was going to be um, whether there's a supernatural element in the book or it's intended to be ambiguous, whether there is or isn't a supernatural element. So I got the feeling that maybe it is just in there. But I wonder, is there supposed to be some ambiguity to that?
0: There definitely is a supernatural element. I even say that the book is a little bit like Lizzie Borden meets supernatural, like the TV show, (laughs) (laughs) because I I do like supernatural horror, but I left it ambiguous as to what that darkness is. Like if you imagine like it, Stephen King said, I don't ever actually really say what it is other than it's a darkness over this location, you know, but I don't necessarily name it because I, I do think there is a little bit of a darkness in that location. And I'm not sure if we know what it is.
1: That's a good point. And you actually, and you did do like, um, you did a good job of giving examples of what it could be, but it's all coming Mm -hmm. from like discovery from the characters. So we only know what they figured out. Um, so, yeah, like they're, yeah. it's their best guess. And we just have to kind of decide whether we're going along for that ride or if we're skeptical about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. But kind of dialing into the actual main story now, um, it uh, the protagonist is Tessa Gomez. And um, she's in high school and had um, suffered a recent tragedy where her, she lost her father um, about a year, year and a half before the book takes place. Um, and so it's her and her brother and her family have moved to this town to get away from all the bad memories that are associated with, um, living in Philadelphia where this tragedy, where they lost her father. Um, and so it's a real high school life of, you know, these kids, like her brother's got a girlfriend and, but the thing I like about you did a great job in my opinion of just establishing some stakes right up front. Cause I think it was in the first, yeah, it's the first chapter of the pra- prologue or whatever. Yeah. Like a, the very stark image of, of her brother being arrested at his girlfriend's house. Who's a very rich, prominent family in the town, just drenched in blood. So um, you really kicked it off with like, there's no amb- ambiguity. Some bad stuff is happening and it's happening right away.
0: Yes. So I had the idea of doing the dual timeline of starting off in the aftermath, and then the the subsequent timeline will be the day of the murders. I had seen it done a lot on TV. I had watched a few TV shows. I think at that time I was watching Dr. Death, which was about this surgeon spinal surgeon and it was played by pacey from dawson's creek and (laughs) it was going back and forth of him being this prominent med school student and then him being accused of killing or paralyzing all these people on the table and it was a true story and that what kept me hooked episode after episode was this back and forth of when are these timelines going to merge like when am i going to see the minute in his prominent med school career that he breaks bad. And that's what I was curious to see. And I wanted to replicate that in a book form. And so I loved the idea of starting off right off the bat with him having already been arrested and accused of murder and even starting the timeline on the day of the murders of knowing who is ultimately sort of responsible for those murders who was orchestrating this and what keeps you going is what went wrong. Cause it didn't yeah. go as planned and why this is happening. And that was my hope to, as a reader, you will have that same experience that I've had, you know, when reading books or watching TV shows, hook them up no. differently. So it's not who did it. Yeah. It's the why did they do it and how did right. it go wrong?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh with that type of thing too you don't know where along the story those timelines are going to converge so it could be a thing where halfway through the book we figure out everything and then it's stuff that happens afterwards um but like in this particular Mm -hmm. one um we really are kind of kept guessing very close to the end of the book um and what I I'm the type of person as a reader where um, I like to look for the clues and I like to you know it's like I'm building I'm building the mystery the 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 crime scene board or whatever in my mind where I'm like oh this means this and this plus this means this you know and I try to figure it out as I go and um, mm-hmm. it was nice to see that like I got the opportunity to just kind of keep guessing and 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 trying to figure it out throughout the entire, almost a good chunk of the book, the majority of the book. Um, But I feel like it's (laughs) probably got to be a little bit difficult to maintain the pace of two different timelines. Was that challenging?
0: So I am a linear writer. I don't just start off with the scene that excites me. I write in order and I write with an outline. And so I actually wrote one timeline all the way through, finished it, and then wrote the other timeline all the way through, and then I merged them together, going back and forth. And it just so happened that like the big twists of everything just fit perfectly together so maybe some part of my brain was really orchestrating it super well and i'm really smart or i just got lucky but the timelines kind of fit (laughs) together that a lot of the reveals happened at the same time and it looked like i totally meant to do that from the very beginning so I thought it was, it was an interesting way to write. And it also allowed me to make a lot of changes that I wouldn't have done in the beginning because it is young adult and there are a lot of questions about how far you can go in the horror genre when you are writing for teens. You know, will you get flagged by a library or school if you go too far in certain elements? So my initial outline for the book, I wasn't sure if I was going to show the big, murder scene because I wasn't sure if that was going to get me flagged or get me in trouble. And in the initial outline, I kind of yada yada over it that maybe they <laughs> would go into the murder room post the actual, you know, death happening. And when I got to that scene, I was like, no, I'm going to write it. I'm going to go. I'm And I'm not just going to write, I'm going to go all in and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do it all in and i'll see what happens and it went through editorial perfectly fine and it was actually a lot of fun to write that scene so i'm glad i did it
1: that um me too first of all um i think it makes for okay. I, I don't know if i don't know if i don't want to say a better story but like i think it made i think it was the right choice um But then the question that that inspires for me, because I'm less aware of how young adult books are written or, or like what the um, guardrails are, is there, and you've written plenty of young adults. So what are, how do you um, determine what's too much or not enough? And is there any kind of reference or resource that you use um, to make sure that you're in line with like, that that age and stuff.
0: There is no master reference or guide. I will say I know that if you use the F word, for example, that will get you flagged by school libraries. And I have had editors say, do you want to use it? because I'm not the type of writer that stylistically I use that word very often in my writing and there are plenty of novels that are for young adults that do and it works and they don't get flagged for it but in my particular writing style when I use that word it kind of seems a little jarring so I think in all of my books I'm on my eighth I've only used it once and it was in a very extreme situation where I said to the editor when she flagged it you tell me what somebody else would say in the situation I can't think of anything you know this this is what you would say. I also know more than death, more than blood, more than killing children, sex will get you flagged Mm -hmm. in a young adult novel, especially by schools. So my last book, Small Town Monsters, features demonic possession and a cult. And I did an event in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is more like the Bible Belt part of Pennsylvania. There's where Amish country is. And I had a lot of teachers show up from those more religious schools and ask me questions about the book. And one of the questions they ask is they use the word, is it clean, which is kind of a a controversial word to use as if implying the alternative is dirty, but they're asking it doesn't have the F word and does it have sex? And I would say, no, it doesn't have those things, but it does have demonic possession and, you know, a cult, that was fine. They're like, that's fine. We you mean? That's fine. You know, any, all of that is good as long as it doesn't have the F word or sex. So that will get you flagged more than anything. And even if you look at the book bannings going on, sweeping the country right now with the young adult genre, The majority of the books that are being challenged are being challenged because of a sex scene that could be one to two pages out of a 400 page book and is being called pornography for having a sex scene in it or anything with gender identity or lgbtq anything related to sexuality has been deemed inappropriate by all of these extremist groups i guess so that more than does your book include murder and death and blood. It's kind of bizarre.
1: <clears throat> That's, um, sadly, kind of not surprising in a way, like, um, totally different. I was listening to a podcast where they were discussing, you mentioned it before Stephen King's it. And, um, there's a very controversial scene in that book that involves
0: oh, I that one.
1: <laughs> kids, kids and sex and it's probably one of the most like spoken about parts of the book as far as a controversy yeah. goes and when i'm listening to these people talk about it one of the points they made was like you have no problem with like the graphic description of like kids getting killed but this scene and they kind of um did a good job of explaining the meaning behind the scene um, is because yeah. is, um, it's, you know, the way they explained it, it seemed much more like a, there was consent and there was like a, they, they chose to do this. And it was, and I know I'm it's, I'm, I'm going to just be awkward talking about it because it's still weird thing to talk about. But basically the point was, you don't have a problem with this horrible gruesome thing that happened to a kid, but when they like kiss or make out or something like that, then you start having a problem. Like, you know, um, and that's I an did. interesting, I did see,
0: yeah, I heard that podcast and Stephen King was on it. And he, oh. I would think was the one who made that point that people didn't have a problem with the children being murdered. They had a problem with the child sex scene. Yeah. I, I, it's a controversial take um, that I probably, I don't know if I'm putting it out there into the <laughs> world with this because there are a lot of Stephen King fans and I am one of them, just to be clear. I am a huge <laughs> Stephen King fan. I have read lots of his books. But as a a woman and as a mother of a 12 year old girl, I just had this conversation literally yesterday with another young adult horror writer. My issue with that scene was of the Stephen King books that I have read, that was the most unrealistic
1: of all Um, of his scenes.
0: I can suspend disbelief about an evil clown murdering people or vampires or a killer dog. I can suspend disbelief about the supernatural, but there was not a supernatural element to that scene, to the Best of my knowledge, it was not described as if those kids were possessed by anything that made them do that. So from a mother of a 12-year-old girl and having been a 12-year-old girl, I just think it's a really unrealistic depiction of a girl willing to take all of her clothes off in front of a group of boys and participate in an act like that with all of them watching and then being described as she enjoyed it it just seemed more unrealistic yeah. than the actual it i guess cuz <laughs> it lacks supernatural it lacks supernatural yeah. it wasn't so it's not like one is worse than the other the 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 kids it's just more one i actually could suspend disbelief and believe because it had a supernatural element to
1: it that's a yeah that's a good take and i I have to remain not neutral, but like i don't I've never read it, so i never i can't form a an informed opinion on it from my own experience of reading it but um it's uh it's interesting how it all kind of talk like it's interesting how it inspires conversation and it does let us see what our perspectives are on, on what's acceptable and what's not though. Like um, however we, Mm -hmm. however we land on it. um, I think there is, I don't know. Kind of like you were saying, not, I don't even know if imbalance is the right word, but um, an interesting focus on one um, on the sex being uh, a problem more than violence being a problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, in general, not not in that specific book. There's a lot of horror novels. Yeah, a lot of horror novels deal with sex. It's a very common element in horror novels, horror movies. Um, The question is, I guess, if you took that out would it change anything is it integral to the plot does it move the plot forward and does it change anything or could you pretty much take that scene out and everything stays the same and i guess people will have their own answer to that i know which way i lean on certain you know books or movies that i have seen with sex and whether it was it felt like it really showed a lot about the character and if you took it out nothing would make sense or the opposite is true
1: yeah yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, Cause if it's not serving the plot or doing something to establish something important in the story, like what, what's the point kind of.
0: Yeah. Um, it's sort of like the subplots you see in a lot of hard novels. I, I was recently read jaws, the book, as opposed to the movie. And I was surprised to find out there was an entire subplot about divorce. And I was just like, I'm here for the shark,
1: you know, and it was like,
0: if you took this entire divorce scene out, you wouldn't lose anything. And that's exactly what the movie did. It took the entire divorce subplot out and just focused on the shark. And I think it served the plot better.
1: Huh? That's interesting. Cause that's not a very big book. I haven't read it, but I know it's not a super lengthy book. Um, no. Huh? Yeah, that's got me something to think about now. (laughs) Um, so kind of turning attention to some of the themes that I picked up and I'm going to preface this by saying like, obviously every, every reader's experience is individual. So, um, I feel like sometimes things that I get are just maybe things I'm looking for as a reader, like that I'm interpreting in my own life. Um, but I like to kind of talk about themes that I picked up. And one of the ones is, um, with the idea of feeling guilty or responsible for something, and then how that changes your behavior. Um, like you're almost kind of making up for it. Um, and I don't know how deeply I can go into the specifics of, of the story, but I guess it doesn't really spoil mm-hmm. anything though. Um, to talk about that. Right. Um,
0: no, I mean, there are definitely, there's a grief element in actually my last two books. Small Town Monsters also had a grief element and how people handle grief or what they would do. In that book in particular, it's it handles the theme of people send, sending up that prayer of, I would do anything, absolutely anything if this doesn't happen. You know, that bedside yeah. prayer you would make in a hospital. And what if that prayer was answered not by the good place but by the bad place but your person still lived would you make that deal you know and with hatchet girls it was more a little bit of survivor's guilt that i think a lot of people know in some way or another if i had just made a different choice Would this person still be here? That what if, what if, what if that plagues a lot of people who are alive when someone they loved isn't and how that really clouds who you want to be. Well, I have to prove that I'm deserving to be here and that I earned this life like Saving Private Ryan. You have to earn this when other people didn't. And why am I here? And what if, what if?
1: Yeah. And I think that what I think was illustrated well in the book, because of that survivor's guilt was, um, we got to see. So obviously we got to see how it changed Tessa as a character to feel that way. But then you did a great job of showing how it, how, what she thinks I've got to do this in order to be a better person or make up for what I did or whatever. Um, the impact it has on the people that she still has. Um, so <clears throat> wanting to move away for all of the reasons that she did left someone behind, and um, yeah, kind of like you were saying, like uh, the way that her kind of day to day behavior is, she's kind of removed from who she could be because she's like punishing herself and thinking that she has to act a certain way. So, um That was something that I found to be very good in the book was how you illustrated um, what negative impacts that has on the people that she loves, even though she doesn't mean for it to happen. Like, you know, um, it, it still hurts other people too.
0: Yes. And also I think it's common, they always tell you when something tragic happens to not make any big life decisions for the first year. And yeah. sometimes people do. And one of the common decisions is to move, to go somewhere else and be, and start fresh. And a lot of times you may find that you have just packed up your problems and taken them to a new yeah. location and you haven't actually dealt with them and i think that's the case for tessa she packed up her problems thought she could be in a new location and be a new person new tessa as she called it and eventually <laughs> it it will all come crashing down on you
1: yeah cuz um you know i think i've i've experienced a, a, enough grief to understand that like you can't it's not something you can run away from at some point. You're going to have to confront what happened and how you feel about it in order to process it. Like you can't just say I'm moving on. I'm a different person. It's going to come back at some point. Yeah, for sure. And this kind of, this next thing um, kind of ties in a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about the history of, of the area and stuff. But so Mariella Morse is um, Tessa's brother's, girlfriend she's the daughter of this rich family the morse family um which has direct lineage to lizzie borden so there's a there's a connection there um and you know obviously some some bad stuff happens in that family it's it's very obvious that the the father is a mean person and an abusive person um so it got me thinking about Kind of what we were talking about before with is the is, is bad thing happening because the the area is corrupted or is the area corrupted because bad thing happened kind of thing? Like is there mm-hmm. uh in this family tree, is it just rotten or uh is that just something to think about to kind of take the blame off of yourself in the current day kind of a thing. I don't know if that made sense the way it's that it's
0: interesting because I Yeah. I did some research on the Borden family when I started, you know, the research for this book. When I started the research for this book and looked into Lizzie (laughs) Borden, I, like many people, probably didn't realize that the people killed were her father and her stepmother. In the nursery rhyme, you know, it's she gave her mother, not her stepmother, you know, 40 wax. So, I didn't realize that as until I did further research, so Lizzie Borden's biological mother died when she was a toddler, and that was Sarah Morse, and she died of natural causes, some sort of illness, and it made it even sadder for me when I realized how much tragedy has befallen this family, and if you look at the people who were present at the time of the murders, one of them is John Morse, who would have been Lizzie's biological uncle, her biological mother's brother. So she still had a connection to that family line, and he was present at the day of the murders. And for a lot of people who don't want to believe that Lizzie did it, He is the next logical suspect of who may have done it. And even when you go to the Lizzie Borden house and take the tour, he is brought up as a potential suspect and what his alibis were at the time. And one interesting tidbit they tell you in the tour is he showed up when the police were there. He stayed outside, very similar to Lizzie, and was eating like a pear in the yard rather than going immediately in when he sees the police. And he had such a specific alibi that he was not only out of town, he could name all the passengers who were on the carriage with him as well as the horses. And- You take your own opinion as to whether it's typical that somebody can name everyone on the bus, you know, with them at that at that certain time. So there is some questions, you know, that nobody really has that great of an alibi. And so the question is, who did it or was it a collective that may have done it? And it felt like the tragedy in a, a lot of it was Sarah Morris who didn't get to raise her daughters and they are the ones who are now known in infamy well, Lizzie especially for this heinous crime. Well, I can also say in the research, if you watch like the ghost hunter episodes, (laughs) the tons and tons of ghost hunter type shows about Lizzie Borden, many of them will imply that John Morris has some sort of connection to black magic. And there is zero proof of this. I've been to the Fall River Historical <laughs> Society. I scoured everything I could to find anything that officially accused him in any way of having committed a crime, anything suspicious, and there isn't. But I will say the ghost hunter shows definitely believe in that element, which kind of adds to the lore of the Bordens.
1: Yeah. Um that okay, so that brings up something. Um there's an element of I don't want to say I don't know if I don't have the right word for it, maybe, but um spells or magic. Mm-hmm. Sorry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Something's happening above me and it's like something's tumbling around up there. <laughs> um sorry, spell spells or magic or something like that. Um but that kind of also gave me a feeling of um uh, similar to what we were talking about before where like the kids, the characters kind of have to figure out their best guess of what's going on. It's it the thing I liked about the way that magic was incorporated in this was like, it, it was like a, oh, we, we're going to try this as opposed to um you know, an established kind of like, you know, I found this book and it tells me to do X, Y, Z. Um, it felt a lot more kind of off the cuff um, the magical kind of element to that. And, um, where's my question with this? I think that what I'd like to know is like how, how much, I guess, where, where's your belief structure, not just with the idea of magic, but with like ghosts and the supernatural and the paranormal and things like that. Like how much weight do you give to, um, those things or, or our ability to influence things by like making a spell happen or something like that?
0: I'm not sure where I fall in the terms of magic. I will say that <laughs> I do believe in ghosts and I do believe in evil. I was raised Catholic, so the idea that evil exists and you it is a choice that you know you, to go to the dark side. I do believe in that. That my first book, Small Town Monsters is about possession horror and it talks a lot about the nature of evil and was based off of, if you know the Stanford experiment, where the guy went into Stanford in the 70s and created this prison environment and it became Lord of the Flies within like a day, and he thought it would last for weeks. And since that experiment, this, um, I believe he's a PhD, I believe he's a doctor, has studied evil that is his life's work is to study the nature of evil and he gave a ted talk on the nature of evil and it is fascinating um i don't know if you can find it for the show notes it is so great and he talks about his conclusion being that evil is a choice that you make inside yourself and whether you're going to cross the line do we all have the ability to break bad and Become evil? And is it a presence in this world? And I do believe in that. You can't, I lived five blocks away from ground zero on September 11th. You can't go through that and not believe that evil exists in the world. There's just certain things that are beyond comprehension. And to that effect, I do also believe in ghosts in that. I mean, I live in Philadelphia. I believe my first house that I lived in when I was married was haunted. I have seen some creepy stuff, you know, that (laughs) has made me believe that there is definitely more to life than just the existence that we are currently in.
1: So you brought up something that I I find incredibly interesting. um, And it's something that, so I recently spoke with Philip fricassi about his book Boys in the Valley. Uh, and I, in the beginning of the conversation, really kind of categorized it as a possession book, and he pushed back on that pretty quickly because um in in his kind of goal with the book, he didn't want the idea of the kids losing their ability to choose what they do from the equation. So like Um, in his book, it's not a possession book, but it's more of like, there's an evil influence and still the kids, what they end up choosing to do is their choice. And so I've thought that was an interesting, um, distinction that I hadn't really maybe thought about too much before, but in this situation, Mm -hmm. would you say, this it almost feels like this is more of an evil influence as a possibility to explain what what's going on, but it's still kind of up to the individual characters whether they go with it or not. There's a lot of pushing going on, I feel yes. like, in the book.
0: In Hatchet Girls, it's definitely more of an evil influence hovering over the area and how much you give into that influence is up to you. However, I think in my last book with Small Town Mantras, which is more of a direct possession story, I follow the thinking of it is a possession story, but you have to invite it in.
1: You have oh, okay. to make that yeah.
0: choice to invite it in. And you see that a lot in possession stories You can go back to the exorcist of him saying at the end, take me, take me instead. That is a common way to end a lot of possession stories. They make the choice to invite it in. It's in vampire stories. You have to invite the vampire in. So there Mm -hmm. is an element of choice even in those possession stories, but with Hatchet girls, it's more of the town, the area, the Bridgewater triangle, having this dark energy over it and I give the example of how much of it are you ingesting? How yeah. much are you choosing to ingest? And that sort of threads throughout the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, and I love that. I love um, how intentional that, you know, it is that choice is a part of it because, you know, I'm sure we all want to be good people, but like, you know, we all, have kind of maybe done something we regret or we shouldn't have or whatever in the past. And so like, but that's the whole idea. Like the idea of choice takes away like um, an excuse almost in a way. I don't know. Maybe I'm not Mm -hmm. seeing that, but like, it doesn't absolve someone, I guess is what I, what I mean to say um, of Mm -hmm. what, of what happens. Um, Yeah.
0: And that, that's something that they wrestle with in Small Town Monsters because it is a choice. There is a cult spe- spreading through town. And what at some point, if you're in a cult, you do get brainwashed. But at some point, you made the choice to join the cult.
1: Yeah. And
0: that's sort of examined what led these people to make the choice that they did to join this cult. And it was the idea of people following blindly a charismatic leader and putting aside all previous logic and reason to just follow a charismatic leader. Um, That is present in a lot of cult stories and it's, it's an interesting theme to explore, but Hatcher girls is a little different where it's more of like an ambient evil, not a specific entity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Kind of zooming out a little bit, uh, is there an element when you write a YA book of being more intentional about what you want your readers to get out of the book? Like, do you uh, establish the kind of morals or lessons or whatever as part of what you want the story to be? Or um, is it just telling a story like anybody else would write a story?
0: It starts off telling a story like anyone else would tell a story, but I find definitely not with all YA. So my, my previous six books were not hard. They were contemporary romance. They were thrillers. You're along for the ride. They're fun. They -hmm. have themes to them, but I didn't set out to say anything about society at large in general. And with The horror books, I feel like horror gives you an interesting opportunity to say something about the world that you're living in without saying it. You know, you if you do that in a contemporary romance, it feels like a back to school special, you know, and you don't want to come across as preachy. But with horror, you get to use these spooky elements and then think a little bit deeper about what was going on in the world when the author wrote this and what might be an additional layer to this story. And I find that is present in a lot of great horror that if you look at the time period that this came out in, it probably says a lot about the world as it was right then. And so I do, after I come up with the idea and craft the characters and the plot, try to think about why does this work right now in the world yeah. that we're living in and what can this shine a light on?
1: That's, um. I was talking to Alma Katsu um, when one of her spy novels came out but we we were kind of preview talking about her book the fervor and how you know um there's a lot of asian american hate in the book because it takes place with the japanese Mm -hmm. internment camps uh during world war ii and she had made some kind of comment about how um she wasn't super intentional with her earlier books about saying something about today in the books that she's writing. Cause it's all historical horror. Um, but especially with that one, it was like, cause you know, she's Asian American as well. So she, it, it's a more personal thing, her family, her husband's family and everything experiencing and seeing their, you know, people go through such hatred, um, that it was like, it would inspire her to be more intentional about connecting like, the social commentary to um, her historical uh, horror fiction. And I thought that was really cool that, yeah, there is something about horror where it really kind of lets us examine, well, I guess because it's scary stuff, right? It lets us examine yeah. trauma, how we react to it, what we choose to do about it, things like that, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yes. And with Hatchet Girls, when I first came up with the idea, it started with how sensational of a story would it be if another mother and father were killed by Axe? Because it would be a huge news story. That's, that's the first thing I thought of. This would be everywhere. And especially if the kid accused is Puerto Rican, is a brown kid, how that news story would be treated, how he is treated. And then it, to show how differently the media might treat a pretty blonde girl. And it's, I think, relevant and accurate that these two people would be treated very, very differently in the news cycle and by the society at large. And it's something I wanted to talk about, especially with what's going on just in the world right now and what teenagers face every day in a lot of communities.
1: Yeah, um, that was that was a very good part of of the story. Yeah, was definitely how it contrasted. How not just law enforcement, but media and individual people mm-hmm. treat like, you know, being so quick to call someone a murderer. Um, and they happen to be, you know, this type of person and um, going in the exact opposite direction for a different type of person. Um, yeah, it was definitely a very effective yeah. kind of look at that type of thing. One of my thoughts then, because we talked a little bit about working um, themes and morals and everything into the book was, is there something that you would like to have readers walk away with specifically about hatchet girls? Like what would be considered like, hey man, uh, because there is always a case for just a book can be entertaining and that's enough. But like, is there something beyond being an entertaining, fun, thrilling, scary story that you would like to have people come away with?
0: One thing I do intentionally in my novels, especially the last couple of novels, is include diverse characters. My father is Puerto Rican. He grew up in Utuado, Puerto Rico. I know I don't look like the general stereotype, but there aren't a lot of horror novels where the main character is Latino or Latina. It tends to be the white girl with the big boobs who gets to be the final girl at the end. And I want to create more stories that are fun stories that are horror stories that feature a puerto rican family and puerto rican characters at the center and it's not all tragedy it's not an immigration story it's not a poverty story it's just they get to be the center of the horror story for once, instead of Sydney and Scream, you know, like you get to add a little bit right. more diversity. And especially in the young adult genre and in the children's genre, it's something ridiculously low like 5% of books feature Latinx characters. And even of wow. that 5%, it's even a smaller percentage are actually written by Latinx authors. So I want to help expand that statistic so more kids out there reading books can see themselves on the page and don't have to just go to the trauma porn stories about their culture. And they get the fun stories too, the the spooky stories as well. And I hope that opens up doors behind me for more of those stories to come.
1: Yeah, that's great and absolutely a hugely important thing. I feel like I'm trying to think of the right way to say this because it's been something that's been on my mind and I've talked about a little bit here and there um, that there's always been excellent stories um, created or written by people in marginalized um, groups, but they haven't gotten the support from the machine, mm-hmm. the apparatus maybe yeah. um, that they should, but I feel like that is slowly taking in the right direction. So um, I, like that's maybe me being optimistic, but I do feel like compared to 10 years ago, hopefully that page is turning a little bit in the right direction.
0: Yes. I, I, if you compare it to 10 years Ooh. ago, yes. there still is a huge disparity between what you know marginalized authors are paid versus their white counterparts what marketing is given to marginalized books versus their white counterparts how many books they will acquire that feature marginalized characters versus white books. You know, So you're like, oh, I already have my Latinx book for the fall season. I don't need another one. Whereas they can acquire as many white books as they want. No one's counting You know how many there are. So it, it's better than it was 10 years ago, but it still has a long way to go. That became really apparent a couple of years ago when a spreadsheet popped around the publishing world called Publishing Paid Me, and a lot of authors willingly put their name down and said, what they got paid for their books. And to look at the difference between white authors and marginalized authors wasn't just $10,000. It was like 10 times $10,000. It was huge. It was just huge, the differences between these books.
1: That's awful. <laughs> That's completely <Yeah>. awful. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, I definitely agree that there. Um, here's the thing. Um, I seeing the same thing by the same perspective and the same people doesn't enrich anybody. You know Um, the more we can experience from people with different backgrounds and different experiences and different knowledge and different skills and everything, that's what strengthens us. So the fact that we are not getting as much of, you know, storytelling from everybody's perspective is, is a detriment to everybody regardless of who you are.
0: I mean, if you want to get publishing, Talk, it comes from the top down. So the editors, if you have a publishing house full of white editors, they're going to acquire the books that speak to them. Yeah. And often those are white stories. And maybe they see marginalized books come across and they don't identify with the language being used in the dialogue. They don't identify with the story or the setting or they want the story to be a trauma story because those are the ones that they think sell. So if you don't have people of those marginalized groups in the editorial room making those selections, then it limits what's acquired. So but to get a more diverse editorial team, you need to pay higher wages. So a lot of white editors are being supplemented by their families to afford to live off of these meager wages, which is like $40,000 in New York city. So most people can't <laughs> live off of that. And so you're yeah. being supplemented by your family to do that. And a lot of marginalized people don't have that family wealth to help them put first months, last months down on an apartment, you know, in New York. Yeah. So it's the reason Harper union went on strike earlier this year to try to raise the minimum. Minimum wage that they were paying their lowest editorial college graduate you know employees was still like forty thousand dollars that is what i made in new york city 22 years ago so it yeah. is in- irrational no. to think anybody can live off of that so it really does come all the way from the top down if you're looking at big five publishing and how you're going to change the landscape
1: that's yeah that's an excellent point and insane to think that someone could make some desperate attempt to survive in New York city on $40,000 a year. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's pretty insane, but yeah, that's, um, that's an excellent point. So um, I don't know if this is a segue or it's building off of, of what we just talked about, but are there, um, first of all, do you read horror much? Um, Are you a horror fan? I guess I'll start with that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I won't say I read it exclusively, but I read it primarily um, as a genre. And I even read it when I was younger. So I'm a child of the 90s. So I grew up with R.L. Stein writing Fear Street, not Goosebumps. So like, I Mm. like the Fear Street. (laughs) I like Christopher Pike. Was, you know, kind of a counterpart to R.L. Stein, Christopher Pipe, with the remember me, That's So that's what I grew up with those paperbacks and I devoured them. So small town monsters and hatchet girls, I always say are the first books that I've written that I would have read when I was a kid. Uh-huh. They fit perfectly into my wheelhouse and I still devour a lot of adult horror as well as young adult horror.
1: So are you just in love with the fact that um, some of those things that you mentioned are, are being adapted? So um, the Fear Street movies, I watched with um, I watched with uh, the fourteen year old, and uh, we really enjoyed them. Yeah. Um, but they're
0: great. Oh, uh, I thought they were so great, and they're so R.L. Steiny. Like if, I've met him in person at a at the Thriller Fest conference that I went to a couple of years ago, I had a book nominated for the awards. He was one of the big panelists. I think he's very yeah. high on the board there. And he's very funny. He's super, <laughs> super funny. And he even made the joke during his panel of... Everyone was complaining about how mean social media was, how hard it was to be on Twitter or the app formerly known as Twitter. And he made the joke of, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I am beloved. My 90s (laughs) fans love me. And I was like, that's us. That's us like all his Gen Xers. (laughs) I was like, we love him. And I thought the movies were so spot on with the the books being strapped to the chest (laughs) as as a safety precaution were so great.
1: Yeah. And then also, did you watch Midnight Club? Um,
0: yes, yeah. That show
1: that um, Mike Flanagan. That's Christopher made.
0: Pike. Uh,
1: yeah, that's uh, the Christopher Pike I stuff. I love,
0: I love Christopher Pike. Yes, yeah, that. I mean, Christopher Pike is probably my like one true reading love when I was growing up. I still have a shelf in my office that is entirely Christopher Pike wow. books from the nineties. Because that is what inspired me to want to be a writer. I want to make another kid want to buy all of my books and keep them for 30 years.
1: Wow. That's awesome. Do you have any contemporary favorites, I guess, that are horror? Or I guess, what are your contemporary favorites? I'm not going to limit it to YA or adults or horror or not.
0: So I read in all formats, I do a lot of audio, and I have read some fantastic audiobooks recently. Um, In the young adult horror space, there's a book called The Weight of Blood by Tiffany D. Jackson. It was nominated for the Bram Stoker this year, and it is a reimagining of Carrie by Stephen King, only with a diverse cast and instead of it being puberty as the initiating incident that kicks off Carrie's powers she is a biracial teen and it's who is passing as white and it's when her high school finds out that she is half black that kicks off the bullying that inspires the book. And it is an excellent audiobook told from all these different <laughs> uh, actors. They have multiple actors. There's a podcaster doing the podcast, and it jumps around in time. The bad girl, the bad guy, the main character, Carrie, the love interest, they all have a point of view, and they're all read by different actors. So I thought that was really great. Um, similar in the audio book, I listened to Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. And I had just Googled best books with ghosts. I just felt like reading a ghost story. It's an adult book. And this came up on one of those like GQ lists of like best books with ghosts. I hadn't heard of it somehow. And it says in the beginning of the audio, read by a full cast. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like, God, I think I recognize this voice. I think I recognize that voice. I get to the end of the book. And it's that the narrators were like Susan Sarandon, Ben Stiller, Julianne Moore, <laughs> Lena wow. Dunham. It was like every huge celebrity had uh, had done narration for this book. And it's a really cool concept based on a kernel of truth, which I love and I use in my own novels. And the kernel of truth was that during the time of the, the Civil War, Lincoln's son passed away who was an adolescent, I think he was like about 12 years old, William. And after he was buried one night, Lincoln went to the cemetery, opened up the crypt or mausoleum where his son was kept, opened the casket and held his son's dead body. And that is supposedly a true story. So the book uses all of these nonfiction factoids, mixes it mixes them in there of these different events that led up to this incident and then imagines what it would be like to have been the ghosts in the cemetery witnessing this event happen. I thought that was super cool.
1: Oh, that sounds amazing. Wow.
0: Yeah.
1: That's, cr- that's I've incredible. done a very good
0: job of selling George Saunders' book recently because I've gotten <laughs> asked this question on a panel a couple times, and I swear afterwards everyone's been like downloading the book. <laughs> I should do PR. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, you should. Well, you should get a cut of it or something. Um, <laughs> uh, well, kind of uh, looping back around to Hatchet Girls. Um, in summary, uh, I would I would just say that it's. Um, it, a really entertaining book um, that you know incorporates that cool supernatural stuff that we talked about draws on the history of of this kind of huge historic event not huge but like very well-known historic event and um i think one of the things i walked away most with was just like really enjoying reading the characters though so um like Tessa. Thank you. I'm I'm like, what's next for Tessa? I'm ready to continue reading Tessa. So and I think that's one of my kind of guiding things when I read books is I feel like I I feel like when I wanna keep knowing what's going on with them, I feel like that's a very successful story. And so if you today told me yeah. Hatchie Girls 2 is coming, I'd be like, Great, I can't wait, you know? So um uh I guess that's just kind of a quick kind of zoom out.
0: Yeah. I don't know if there will be a Hatchet Girls 2 in book form, at least not right now. But I will say that I have two film agents from William Morris and who are trying to sell the rights to it, primarily as a TV show. And one of the things that excited them about the book, and I'm not going to spoil it, but was the epilogue and that it has a potential already yep. written in the novel for season two. And that is how I think you would get more of them is if there ever is a Hatchet girls TV series you, and you get the season two, I think it will follow the seeds that are planted in the epilogue.
1: Um, cool. Yeah. I was worried it was about mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did think it's got a very cinematic. It, it lends itself very well to film because it's got, um, these beautiful sounding locations it's got that history that it can draw on um but then just like a compelling story too so I feel like you know if if I know I'm not a studio executive or anything but that seems like kind of a an obvious choice right at least to me it does
0: I would like to think so (laughs) from your (laughs) lips let's hope so
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't come at me if it doesn't happen, um, but I believe in it. So I think <laughs> it should happen. Well, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, you know, well, first of all, I want to thank you and the publisher for giving me early access to the book. And then um, after that, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it. It's such a fascinating concept. And um, I love that I get the opportunity to kind of pick the brains of these, you know, of, of people and and learn more about their stuff. So Thank you for joining me. And, um, oh, uh, we'll just really recap really quick. So the publication date for hatchet girls is
0: October um, 10th. So it is coming out in a couple of weeks, right in time for spooky season.
1: Awesome. I was going to say October 3rd, so I'm really glad I let you step in with that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So do you, have? Uh, and then obviously people can pre-order that now from wherever they choose to pre-order, um,
0: yeah, and, it is available right now, and my other book, Small Town Monsters, is also available, and it is also young adult horror.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I really, the more you kept talking about that book, the more I was like, man, i got to go back and read that one, because it sounds like a, such a cool concept. Um,
0: if you like the one, you're going to like the other. I think <laughs> they're, they're, they've got similar vibes, and they're both dual point of view, and they're both supernatural horror, so I think they appeal to the same fan base.
1: Awesome. Uh, Well, thank you once again for joining me. Um, I I really appreciate your time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great getting to talk to you.